When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Martin Buber said, Real faith means holding ourselves open to the unconditional mystery which we encounter in every sphere of our life and which cannot be comprised in any formula. Real faith means the ability to endure life in the face of this mystery. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Please subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm honored and pleased to welcome Paul Mendez Flor to the show today to talk about his new book, Cultural Disjunctions Post Traditional Jewish Identities. Paul Mendez Flor is a leading scholar of modern Jewish thought. As an intellectual historian, Professor Mendes Flor specializes in 19th and 20th century Jewish thinkers. Mendes Flor is a Dorothy Grant McClear Professor Emeritus of Modern Jewish History at the University of Chicago, as well as Professor Emeritus of Jewish Thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Among his many books is the acclaimed 2019 biography, Martin Buber, A Life of Faith, and dissent. Paul Mendez Flor, welcome to the podcast. Before we talk about your book, Paul, I'd like to ask what I ask all the authors I speak to Was there someone or something that was particularly influential in your own intellectual development? Oh, <laughs> uh, my parents, I guess. <laughs> but uh, along the way, of course, very seminal teachers. Um, particularly of the German-Jewish background, who inspired me and, and gave me a strong sense of, of trust in my own intellect. Um, there's a wonderful statement by George Eliot, um, unfortunately a woman who had, who had to disguise her, her, her gender by assuming a man's name, who said, those who, edu- those who trust us, educate us. And I was graced and gifted by professors who extended to me their trust uh, and learned to trust my own voice, which took a long time. Um, and I'm still struggling with that, but I would credit most teachers with um, allowing me to grow intellectually and spiritually, and I hope also ethically. Why was it important to you to write the book, which, uh, as you write in the introduction, seeks to fortify a Jewish identity as spiritually and intellectually engaging, yet honoring an individual's equally passionate affiliation with other cultural and cognitive communities? Indeed. I, I assume it goes back to my teachers, uh, particularly um, my last uh, class as an undergraduate. I was a student of, uh, I just completed a doctorate with Herbert Marcuse, one of the luminaries of the Frankfurt School. And subsequently, my graduate studies at Brandeis University, where I was taught by 
emigre philosophers, teachers, um, scholars from Germany. Um, they brought into, uh, into my in landscape, intellectual, budding, um, nascent intellectual landscape, um, the sensibilities of a German Jewish scholar who's deeply rooted within Judaism and yet also open to the voices of other cultures, the cosmopolitan spirit that informed uh, what Germans call a Bildungskultur. Uh, and that, is, that requires some um, explication, particularly from the context of the book that we wish to discuss. Bildung is translated in English as education, but it's not the same as the education in a formal sense. The Germans have a word for that called Erziehung. Bildung is an ongoing cultivation, nurturing of one's intellectual and spiritual life, which um, continues way beyond any formal uh, documentation or certification of intellect. Um, we call it a PhD. Um, and it also embraces uh, all human experience. Um, in Judaism, we have a nice expression that the shorosh and nishama, the root of one's soul, um, and the spiritual soul, Nishama, or those who are familiar with the term from its Yiddish pronunciation, Nishama, uh, is nurtured by all experiences. Um, and that means not only Jewish experiences per se, but all the human voices that we encounter uh, in our life's journey. Uh, a life's journey which, according to Bildung, Bildung's ethic is not um, parochial, it's not limited to one's local. Um, cultural heritage that assumes that we are ultimately one, one human family and all voices of the human experience nurture our soul. Um, and that's the great gift I had received from my teachers at, at Brandeis. Um, and I'm continuing, I've, I've came, since I came to Israel, I, I had, to, uh, again, the great fortune, grace, if you wish to use more um, theological terms, uh, to befriend and be taught, to be guided by uh, Israeli academics um, who share this cha uh, this tradition with me, this Bildungskultur. Um, so it's both profoundly Jewish and yet passionately universal. So would you say that this book is aimed at uh, addressing a particular challenge um, or to a particular audience? Yes, well, it gives voice to my own concerns, but, um, but particularly a turn with, within Jewish life that I perceive is deleterious, problematic, and that is transforming Judaism into a form of nationalism. Um, I was particularly disturbed a few, uh, a few months ago when uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, then Prime Minister Netanyahu, referred to someone as a Jewish patriot. Judaism is not a question of patriotism. I found it really vulgar. Um, and a, a uh, corruption of what I find to be the spiritual core of, of Judaism. Of course, we are a community. We have a community of shared faith. Um, there's an ambiguity in Judaism, whether we're a people or, uh, uh, or, or a nation. Um, but we are a people uh, that has a spiritual journey, um, location uh, to reduce it to nationalism, which I, is, I believe is the, the great challenge facing the Jewish people today now that we do have a, a nation state. Um, but even within the context of a nation state, 
to um, limit Judaism, to confine it, to constrain it as a national identity, um, I find betrays our heritage. And identity is the focus uh, of the book, even in the title, Post-Traditional Jewish Identities. Um, And and so you're making the point of including all identities, identities that one may have. You use the plural in the title, and and you talk about that in the book. Uh, But it, it seems inevitable, and perhaps that's incorrect, but it does seem that way, that defining one's identity or articulating one's identity necessarily entails defining some things out, excluding those things that are not me, Right. Is that as inevitable as it seems, or is there another way to look at it? Well, I tried to argue that there is another way to look at it. <laughs> uh, indeed, that is the, the premise of the book, is that we can have a, a firm identity in Judaism that does not, make, that does not lead to arbitrary boundaries uh, and borders. Um, and thus, um, I do speak of having multiple identities, and that I think is um, requires some um, explanation, which I of course seek to do in the book. Um, well, one um, can have multiple identities and still have to rule out some identities that don't fit yeah. at all. Or can one really be that well, inclusive without losing the yeah. particular? Well, I, I, my initial s- statement suggests that we rule out <laughs> a, a purely emphatic, uh, even chauvinistic notion of Jewish identity. National identity is patriotism. That I find to be obviously problematic because it shortchanges, so to speak, uh, the, the, the cosmopolitan vista that I think we are are called upon, even in ancient Judaism. I recall my own bar mitzvah I read from uh, the Haftarah, the, the prophetic portions from Amos. And Amos turns to Israel, uh, or Amos, I think you say in English. Uh, yeah. Remember, I'm not only the God of the Israelites, I'm also the God of the Ethiopians, etc. Uh, and that's the heart of Judaism. I'm not saying it's God of the first God of creation, uh, of all, all who dwell and all that that is part of creation, and even the, the animal world and the vegetative world. Um, but specifically, specifically speaking about human beings, um, um, Adam and Eve were not Jewish. <laughs> they were, they, they right. represent all, all of humanity. And what is striking about the Bible, uh, take the book of Job. Job is not introduced as a Jew. He's introduced as every human being. That is, every human being struggles with the questions of good and evil, of righteousness, uh, and, and uh, misfortune. You know, Job says, I'm a good person, and I've, I've had it bad. And in the Hebrew, we have a very nice expression, Rasha Betovlo, an evil person, and he has good fortune. But Sadiq, Rado, a righteous person, has misfortune. Um, that is a fundamental uh, enigma, if you wish to call it existential enigma, uh, of all of humanity. Um, and that's embedded within the Jewish tradition that um, the God of Israel 
recognizes the fact that our humanity as Jews is also shared with all other fellow human beings. Um, just it sounds so almost platitudinous, but I think it's so fundamental. And we are loved, we are to love the neighbor because we want to be loved. Uh, and that imitate, and that is a, a reflection of God's love for us. And we are to love the strangers because we knew it was to be strangers. Mm. And God loves the strangers, he loves us. Um, so there's a, 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 if you wish, a particular, there's a tension within Judaism, or an attention, a dialectic between the particularity of Jewishness and the universal embrace of all of God's family, God's creation. Um, and that, I think, has been challenged by a turn to ethnocentric Judaism, certainly in Judaism that sees nationalism uh, as the the refined, the sublime, if you wish, or the only exclusive identification that we have as Jews. And I, and I find that to be a betrayal. So I do ex obviously exclude some, <laughs> some forms, manifestations of Jewish identity. Historically, though, um, religious faith and practice have been the linchpin of Jewish identity. Uh, we've only had a a nation for a very short time, and we've had a very long history. Uh, and, but since the Enlightenment, I guess, uh, the, the secular, uh, or at least not traditionally religious, modern Jew has tried a, a variety of Jewish identities, uh, leaving religion out, the, the, the ethnic identity, uh, communal identity, Zionist identity, and, and probably others. Um, and they have often failed to satisfy or to sustain. Um, uh, why don't those alternatives work when they yeah. don't work? Just one critical comment before I expound upon uh, the question you raised. I noticed in the introduction in front of volume uh, that we're discussing that post doesn't necessarily mean that we lose concern for religious questions, spiritual questions. A post-traditional Jew is not necessarily bereft of faith. Uh, you wrote that beautiful quote from Buber. Um, the mystery of life still is beholden to all of us, because uh, all human beings, but even if in terms of our J Jewish concerns. Um, so post doesn't necessarily mean a loss of faith, uh, a loss of, um, uh, of religious concern, spiritual concern. But what it does mean is that uh, traditional expressions and uh, normative expressions of, of, of Jewish faith are now questioned, or at least reassessed. Um, and so there's a dialogue between, if you wish, uh, between the tradition, which I seek to promote or explore in the book, between the traditional modes of Jewish spirituality and religious concern, and a modern sensibilities, which do raise with from the Enlightenment questions, uh, it glorifies questions. There's a beautiful poem by uh, um, Abakovna. Abakovna was a, a Hebrew poet, and, his, and towards the end of his life, he was stricken with a terminal cancer, and he was sent to one last attempt to um, to to, um, to overcome the cancer to a hospital in New York, which is considered the center for cancer uh, research and, and treatment, Sloan Catering Hospital in New York City. 
And while, while in, at the hospitals, Nabokovna wrote a series of poems under the title Sloan Cratering. In the very last poem, where he realizes that he's come to the end, he has the refrain, one more question, please, before you take me, one more question. And that, in some sense, is at the heart of even Trabinic Judaism, questions. Uh, but in the post-traditional world, though, as you put it very well, the, the post-Enlightenment world, questions abound. Um, it's the very nature of this, of the, can I use a fancy term, epistemological or <laughs> cultural, let's, sense, let's call it cultural sensibility, um, that we do ask questions. The very nature of modern education is to learn how to formulate questions, not just ask questions, but how to formulate questions. So we're bound by the very nature of our modernity to questioning, and that also we, um, engages the way we engage in Judaism. So post-traditional identity is not necessarily, as you suggested, just provocatively, of course, uh, limited to uh, secular ethnic concerns. And my concern the overarching concern of the book is how do we still maintain a, a spiritual tr sensibility true to our tradition, the primordial or primal sensibilities of Judaism, religious sensibilities and concerns of Judaism, reaching back indeed to the Bible, as I briefly sought to suggest, within the, the post-enlightenment context, but it's certainly not bereft, not void of spiritual and religious concerns, and nor is it really... Um, cut off, so to speak, uh, severed from the tradition. It's in dialogue with the tradition. Uh, and that's what I sought to um, explore and how we maintain that dialogue uh, in a productive, constructive, engaging fashion uh, within the context of our modernity. When you um, speak about it in the book, uh, the spiritual aspects as, as well as the multiple identities, you make a very interesting and, and very important distinction between one's identity and oneself. Tell us about that. Right. That helps me also elaborate what I want to say about post-event that, that uh, allows for plurality of voices. We each have our own um, self, which is obviously determined by uh, the, um, uh, the fortuities of our life, where, where we're born into, with parents. We don't choose our parents. <laughs> uh, they don't choose us. Uh, we don't choose the language in which we are born. We are primarily exposed to. Um, uh, so our self is, in some sense, a fortuity, um, but it's one that we embrace, right? the way the genetic makeup, not all of us are born with blue eyes or, or whatever, <laughs> not all of us are about six foot tall. I mean, with age, I'm a bit less than I was prime <laughs> time. <laughs> I was, I think, six one now, maybe five eleven, but still fairly tall, uh, uh, and the like. Um, so the self has obviously multiple the, Features that are determine our existential reality, um, uh, and of course, we bring ourselves into the world in which we encounter, culturally, socially, politically, and the like. Um, and that's a, a feature we that most existentialists uh, 
right? explorer, existentialist philosophers. The, the, the dialogue between oneself uh, and um, the world we, we encounter. And it's an uncertain journey. You mentioned Buber. Buber says very clearly that, um, that everyone's journey is, is indeterminate. Who we're going to meet? I, I just had the honor of meeting you, Renee. Uh -huh. and, and I trust even after this broadcast, we will have opportunity to continue our dialogue. Um, but that's true I look life. forward to that. <laughs> because the grammar of life is, is undetermined. Uh, so... There is a, if you wish, a dialectic or tension, not tension, but uh, some sort of grammatical, if you think a sentence is never been totally completed between one sense of self, one understanding of oneself and the, world, and, the, and the world around us, which help determine the way we give expression to ourself and that we may call identity. Um, but, the, but the fact that we... Uh, live in a world of multiple possibilities. I'm sitting now in a, in a, a reading room where there are books of, I notice, uh, in sociology, philosophy, books referring to Greek traditions, Aztecs and Jewish books. The very nature of our, our literary world is open to multiple possibilities. And we all somehow form that predictably in terms of our disposition, which is determined in many ways by our sense of self. Um, so um, Beecher, the postmodern or post-traditional Jew, is that we, there are multiple voices. We all have our own, can I use a more commonplace term? We all have our own take on what it means to be a thoughtful, caring human being and a thoughtful, caring Jew. Uh, and that's in many ways what we, what is denoted by the notion of post-traditional identities in the plural. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, literature as you're sitting in a, a, a surrounded by books, yeah. uh, because in the book, I, I was very struck by something that was brand new to me, uh, the concept of cultural memory and how it is similar to the concept of intertextuality in literary history. Right. Um, expand on that, explain that to us, because memory is, of course, central to both the sense of personal self uh, and, and cultural identity. So, right. please. The term cultural identity is, uh, uh, is a concept I, I encountered by, from two friends, two German academics, but you know, behind an academic is a human being. You often forget that. <laughs> behind, <laughs> behind the uh, the plumber or the the grocery storekeeper uh, is a fellow human being. Um, uh, and the couple I'm referring to is Elida um, uh, and Jan's Jan. Uh, um, when I cut the names at the moment, that's not that's that's what happens with age. You only get, you don't always lose some of your height. You lose some of your memory. That's uh, that's fine. But you, Osman, you're, anyway, uh, yeah, Jan, Jan cultural memory is what we're talking about. Right. So <laughs> I know right. you know that. Yes, yes, I do. Jan and Alight uh, and Osman, very fine human beings, very thoughtful, caring uh, individuals, um, and they came to a nuance of the. The, the notion of collective memory that we just were born into a, a uh, 
a, uh, a library, if you wish, not a library, but a, um, um, a wellspring, if you wish, of memories that define us within a particular group community. Uh, cultural memories provides a more dynamic, nuanced understanding of memory. Um, uh, and it's borrowed from very, the way they develop it is a very lovely way from, if it can be slightly uh, academic, but forgive me for doing that, because um, academics often lose the ability to, to address everyone, the grocery store keeper, uh, the plumber. Um, in any event, let me try to be. Um, well, in our academic. audience, there'll be yeah. a lot of academics, know, so feel free. Yeah. There are other people out, out there. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, Max Weber speaks of, uh, of um, academic life as a, as a vocation, a calling, not a career. Not a, <laughs> it's not a fraternity that you're... Anyway, I, don't, I, I won't <laughs> expand on that, but we do have, a, as academics, responsibility to our fellow human beings, be they PhDs or even didn't have the, the fortune to have a good education. In any event... Um, they use a term borrowed from a, a rhetoric called hypoleptic. We complete each other's sentences. We use words anew, the same words, but we give it new meanings in terms of our own experience or the experience that we gather for, uh, from others whose experience somehow is, uh, resonates with our own or gives us new depth to our, to our self-understanding individually as well as uh, culturally. Um, and this, that is to say, cultural memory allows us to be both rooted in a particular uh, uh, tradition, legacy, and yet to constantly give it new meaning, new, uh, new articulations, and to be nurtured, as I indicated first, before, initially, for an, uh, a memory to be nurtured by other experiences, using again the metaphor of shawush and nishama. Uh, there are many roots, obviously, that that nurture our soul, um, and I went. I, I believe the concept of cultural memory opens up that that the multiplicity of, of roots, sources that uh, nourish us intellectually, spiritually, and ethically. Uh, and I also try to suggest that traditional Judaism was also open to <laughs> a very uh, above the cultural expressions. There are literally thousands of Greek words in the Talmudic tradition. That meant the Jews were engaged in, in Greek culture. Um, and of course, the, any biblical scholar would tell you that the language of the Bible is fed by Egyptian. Moses' name is Egyptian name. My Hebrew name, Pinchas, is an Egyptian name. Uh, although now it's been, Christ, it's been the term baptized as a Jewish name. Uh, uh, take the languages of Jews, Yiddish, Ladino, Persian, Arab, uh, uh, Hebrew, uh, and the like. Uh, but it, it, would you include in that uh, perspective uh, the the very traditional uh, yeshiva kind of universe in which new ideas, new questions, right? Chidushim, the a, a new question or a new perspective on a on a, an ancient text is welcome, but it's still very much within the path of limited traditional thinking. Yeah. 
No, uh, Al Ghazali, an extraordinarily gifted Muslim thinker, made a distinction between traditionalism and tradition. Tradition is a constantly developing uh, way of understanding divine revelation. Traditionalism is born is uh, is a construct of 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 clinging to a certain image uh, of that tradition. And we always had a, the tension between traditionalism and tradition. A modern example of traditionalism is what we may even call orthodoxy, the initial expression, articulation uh, of an ideology of orthodoxy was uh, given expression by a, a German but born rabbi but who lived in Hungary where he became a center of, of, of resistance to what they call, refer to as the corrosive forces of modernity. Understandably, as you suggested in your initial question, that post suggests that we're secular and we lose our, uh, our body nature of, of modernity, our anchor, anchorage or our grounding in Judaism. Khatam Sofer claimed that one way of securing the integrity of traditional Judaism, and here I think he's speaking about traditionalism, uh, is to be understood by a, a, an acronym which he created from the Hebrew word of shalom, which also means cause integrity. It's called shalom, shalem in Hebrew, it means <laughs> fullness or integrity. The shin stands for shemot, names. It is now necessary for the Jews not to adopt non-Jewish names, such as Paul, forgive me, such as Rene. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh -huh. And there are codified names which are <laughs> considered to be Jewish as opposed to modern. And of course, uh, and then uh, Lamed refers to the Shonot. We should avoid really entering the cognitive universe of non-Jewish languages. You can learn German, French to buy tomatoes in the market, but not enter the literary world, not the cognitive universe opened by those uh, non-Jewish languages. And there are only several Jewish languages which he feels are legitimate. One is like, quite extraordinary. Of course, Hebrew, Aramaic, and the various um, dialects of Judaism, and Arabic. Why Arabic? Because the great Jewish philosophers and and and, and codifiers of the Jewish um, Jewish law were wrote in Arabic. Uh, that's something we should heed today in his contemporary Israel. Arabic is kosher, <laughs> but then the mem. That's interesting. That's well, Hebrew well, is malbush, which means dress. Do not dress like the non-Jews. Do not dress like the non-Jews. So we pervert our names. Our languages, our cognitive universe, constricted by Jewish sources, and the way we dress, that's a, that is clearly a sociological response to modernity, not a theological one. Uh, and that's the tension that we speak of, is traditionalism or is it tradition? Now you call, could say that traditionalism, as understood by Khatam Sofer, guards the possibility of tradition, but it's tradition which is quite restricted. Uh, so in some sense, I'm calling for a, a renewal of Jewish tradition outside the boundaries of traditionalism. Yes, that's, that's well said. Um, I've often thought about it as the, uh, the tension or the polarity 
of fundamentalism, which seems to be to have been one response to the threat of modernity. Uh, but fundamentalism is different than traditionalism. I, I like your explanation of it better. Okay. Um, okay, so let's come back to the contemporary Jewish reader. Why is the supreme challenge of the that reader, the secularized post-traditional Jew, um, as you put it, how to accommodate one's bonds to the larger human family with one's commitment to Jewish cultural memory. Because even traditional or traditionalist, to use your word, um, Jewish thinkers and practitioners would say, of course we're part of the human family, certainly. They, they wouldn't doubt it. But it's different now. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I do uh, emphasize that we have an ethical. Yeah. Many of us are engaged ethically with the world beyond the precincts of Judaism. And I may be more specific. I largely put this in footnotes to the book, because I'm now my last... I'm American-born, but I've lived in Israel for close to 60 years. So this is my home. I'm, I'm an Israeli by choice, which gives me a great, perhaps, responsibility um, to, to uh, accept my decisions. Um, I, one of my early essays, I, I used uh, John, Jean-Paul Sartre's notion of, uh, of bad faith. Uh, bad faith is when you don't accept the consequences of your decision. Um, and I didn't, when I came here as an 18 year old boy, and then I returned later, uh, my tw late 20s, uh, and been here since then. Um, I was oblivious, or I accepted a narrative which obscured the fact that this is a country that's um, inhabited by another people, another uh, who have another religious tradition, or have different religious traditions, Christian and Islamic. Um, and I've become, over the years, particularly concerned about our responsibilities and my own particular responsibility uh, as an Israeli by choice uh, to acknowledge that reality. Um, and, um, and that's the Im immediate in interest. And of course, I'm also, um, and I think I have a responsibility as an Israeli, as an Israeli by choice, to um, embrace that reality and try to um, remedy what I think has been um, the um, abuse of, of the Palestinians um, in all levels. Um, there's a wonderful quote, or it's a quote that's misused, but it's I think it's applicable. Um, Rosa Luxemburg was born to a Jewish family became one of the great revolutionaries um, um, in the early 19th century, uh, in the early 20th century, excuse me, when she was approached about the suffering of the Jews, she said, there's no special hot place in her heart for Jewish suffering. But she meant to say that she's open to all human experiences. But using that quote, I, would, I do say that we can have room in our hearts for Jewish suffering. And we, of course, have 
undergone extraordinary suffering, not particularly in the 20th century with the Holocaust, that we have to have room in our hearts also for the suffering inflicted on the Palestinians by the very nature of creating a, a home for Jews in their ancient homeland. Um, and likewise, I'm nature of my of my understanding of that. I'm a member also of the larger UN family. I'm concerned about uh, the continued racism in the United States, um, the racism of within even Arab society. Um, but my most immediate concern, of course, uh, ethically, and I think it's part of my post-traditional sensibility, is um, uh, to um, acknowledge the tragedy that the attempt to create, to overcome or remedy the Jewish tragedy um, uh, that the Palestinians had suffered. So uh, I hope I'm being clear on that. Um, so there is a, an ethical and political, certainly, expression to um, to my post-traditional sensibility. You've been crystal clear. Yeah. Um, I'd like to return to uh, to literature for a yes, moment. Um, in in Judaism, the concept of learning sacred texts, learning Torah, is fundamental and essential. Um, how does that concept apply to the post-traditional Jew? Right. Uh, a significant portion of my book is re refers to, we might call it, uh, a, a revalidation, if you wish, um, of Torah-centered Torah Judaism, Torah-centered study. Um, uh, so uh, I do appeal for returning study to what we call Talmud Torah back to the center of, Judea, of our Jewish sensibilities. It doesn't mean that we're going to study it as uh, so-called traditional Jews had studied it, but we do see it as uh, we do engage uh, with traditional, should at least I suggest that, we, that our, the center of our, our cultural identity should still be sacred texts as opposed to the national flag uh, and the the, uh, the valiant uh, victories of the Israeli army, um, all perhaps are necessary for refortification re re of Jewish uh, of a Jewish life, but it should not be the center of our spiritual and intellectual uh, uh, and cultural identity. And thus, I appeal for a uh, to recenter the study of Torah. But there's a problem, of course, that. Um, we encounter traditional texts. Uh, we, the denizens of the modern world, we've opened to a whole literary penelope, uh, different ways of thinking, different ways of understanding human experience. Um, how do we engage in the study of traditional texts in the light of our, uh, our um, let's call it cosmopolitan, post-traditional sensibilities? Um, and here I introduce a concept that I was first introduced to by one of my German Jewish uh, well, colleagues, wasn't really a teacher, but a colleague who was a teacher, Ernst Simon, who turned to a concept first coined by a Catholic theologian in the 1920s, a man named Peter Wust, uh, called Second Innocence. Um, and that is a term I 
elaborate upon uh, in the, the books, particularly through a reading of The Little Prince, which we all read. It's really read as, this is presented as a child's book, but it's really meant for adults not to lose the naivete, the innocence of asking questions uh, of a child, of a young person. Uh, yeah, the Buddhists book. call Pardon? it big... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I was, no, just, no, please. I was just putting in, speaking of different traditions, Buddhists call it beginner's mind. Oh, that I, it's a you. struggle to keep your beginner's mind. Oh, thank you. I'll have to, if there's a second edition, I'll introduce, introduce the term <laughs> and give you full credit. <laughs> uh, in any event, uh, we obviously have new conceptions of faith. Traditional uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, and Islam understood faith as obedience. And now we understand in the post-traditional world is the type of decision we make. Um, Kierkegaard called it a leap of faith. Uh, and that is the nature of the, the modern struggles with faith, or even the concept of God. Um, or as he read so beautifully, uh, Buber's understanding of encountering the mystery of life, the intractable mystery of life, and not to, um, not to, um, to dismiss it as, uh, uh, as Max Weber would call it, disenchantment. How do we maintain the enchantment of life in our fellow human beings who we care about? Uh, and what are the joys of being a parent? I have two children and four grandchildren. Uh, it's the enchantment of being a parent, of learning to explore the world through the eyes and the feelings and emotions and fears and anxieties and joys of a child. Uh, I recall yeah. this. Yes, well, they, uh, they do remind us what <laughs> it was like for everything to be new. Right, and not to be restrict ourselves in, uh, in ideologies or intellectual positions. So there's a fluidity uh, a grand fluidity uh, that I, that children prompt us to accept. Um, uh, and you so well selected a, a citation from Buber, um, the unconditionality of mystery. Uh, you know, we, the modern world, we tend to think, want to put the conditions of things so we can say there are concepts. Uh, that they're educated, that we have footnotes and bibliographies to defend certain positions. Um, but as we read, as I, the poem of Abu Kofman suggested in his deathbed, we have to learn to respect questions, to formulate the questions, but questions that derive from the human experience uh, and the questions that we learn from, from the Buddha, um, from, from the Christian tradition, or we used to call them primitive traditions of the Aztecs and like. Um, I think that's one of the glories of the modern um, literary world, as you put it, is that uh, to, to help us formulate our own questions uh, with, with the voice of others. Um, and you are making, if I understand you correctly, the same point as... Um, the quote I copied from, uh, from your book uh, from uh, Martin Buber, it's not academic study of those texts, but rather the way uh, he put it is um, 
Cognition is never enough. The deepest part of him must be seized by the teachings of the Jewish tradition, and for their realization to take place in his elemental uh, totality, he must submit to the spirit as clay to the potter. I, I was quite surprised to see that. So conceived, Jewish learning is not the preservation of the old, but the ceaseless begetting and giving birth to the same single spirit, its continuous integration into life. Indeed. Thank you for so, pointing that out, yes. Because that, one of the aspect of traditional learning I think is crucial is that it's in a community. If you ever go into an academic library, like so just university library or University of Chicago, everyone's sitting alone. Many are just pumping their legs nervously. Uh, right. Uh, as opposed to the bonding that takes place in communal learning. Where we learn, we, there is the emotive, the, uh, the affectionate, the A uh, aspect of emotionally bonding with those who study together with you who bring different questions uh, to the text. Uh, and that, I think, is a feature of the traditional modality of, of study that, I, that will allow us to both have cultural memory, communal bond, and yet to, um, to be expansive spiritually and intellectually at the same time. That's a very important point, that integration of interpersonal, social, um, as well as intellectual and inquisitive study. Uh, finally, Paul, talk about sacred discontent and why it's so important. Right. Well, certainly, of course, it means uh, humility, uh, but also um, not only personal humility, but a, a, a compassion, empathetic, attention to the way we interact with other people, um, both in the, the local sense as well as the, the larger uh, uh, family of men, men and women, I should say. Um, sacred suggests that God created the world and the all that is good. It even adds in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis, simple modern Hebrew, the, is very good. But of course we experience the world so often as not, not being good, and that's certainly not very good. And that paradox that's very built into the book of Genesis allows us to, or prompts us, primes us to be alert to the failings of human experience. Is it our responsibility? Uh, we're told the world is good, very good. The world is created uh, through God's beneficence, and yet we experience it also often personally as well as in terms of our neighbors near and far. And it's not so. So there's a certain tension within the Jewish faith, that God created the world, behold, it is good and very good. But the fact is that uh, often it doesn't seem so. There's a beautiful midrash, which has been very important to many modern Jewish thinkers. Shalom, peace, is derived from the word to complete. God created the world, but it's upon us to complete creation, socially, intellectually, spiritually, uh, ethically. Um, 
So our, the sacrality of God's creation, the creation, holiness, and of course they understand holiness as being transcendent apart, but uh, it's indeed our responsibility to rendering the world sacred, uh, but only to, to be alert to the fact that there is um, experience, that we often experience the world as not reflecting, not, not honoring uh, the sacrality of, of, God's, um, of God's creation. Um, so in that sense, I, I, <laughs> I understand the notion of uh, sacred discontent. It's not, I'm not the one who coined the term, but I, I certainly embrace it. And it does sound like it draws a great deal on the prophetic tradition in Judaism. Most definitely. Yeah. The, the prophets, and it's extraordinary about the Hebrew tradition, is that we read not only the, the, the law in the, uh, in the Pentateuch, but we also read on the Sabbath the prophets, due to hilarious, to, the, to those who are orphaned, to the widow, those who are dis, disinherited, that we do have responsibility um, to ultimately smash our, uh, our weapons of war, mutual destruction, and to plowshares. Uh, and, and to, of course, allow the world to, oh, to dwell in the harmony that God had intended to, um, such as you know, Isaiah's notion of fox or a wolf where the child won't be able to walk together and without fear. Uh, and so we have to, that's the sacred, as long as there's still fear in the world, as long as there's still the disinherited, uh, we have a, a sacred responsibility to try to heal. Uh, there's, of course, a modern understanding of notion of tikkun olam, uh, which is a mystical concept, uh, but the modern understanding is that we uh, not only heal, the vibrations of the, of the world of creation. Um, this we call it Kabbalah, the Sfriot, um, but also as those vibrations um, are felt socially and culturally, uh, politically. And the prophets remind us that we do have a responsibility. Remember the vices, it's not enough that you bring the sacrifices to the temple. What about the, those who are hungry? Uh, right, so, that's... Yeah. It's always important to be reminded of that. Uh, Paul, it's been a pleasure talking with you today about what is really a critical topic in modern Jewish life. Thank you very much for taking the time to share your work with us and for being on the podcast. And thank you, Renee, for being a dialogical partner. And as I indicated, I hope our dialogue will continue beyond <laughs> uh, the podcast. I look forward to that, Paul. And, and thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.